Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with lead strength and conditioning coach at the Irish Institute of Sport, Eamon Flanagan. Thanks for tuning in to episode 99 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So in my head, I've got a big build-up to episode 100, but this definitely, as number 99, could have been episode 100 with Eamon Flanagan. So in this chat, we discuss uh, RSI and velocity-based training as our two main topics, uh, and we dive a little bit deeper into, uh, or a lot deeper into, into both subjects. So you're going to really enjoy this chat. Like I said, it could easily have been number 100. Um, I was delighted to get Eamon on. I've been pestering him for probably eight months now um, to try to get him uh, get him on. But he found some time, which was great. And I, uh, I really appreciate Eamon taking the time to come on. So just before we get into the chat with Eamon, just want to introduce you to Ethan at Coach Me Plus. And he's going to talk about uh, drop sets or downsets as they might may be known and how they can be used in strength training and not necessarily just in kind of bodybuilding training. So I hope you enjoy a little chat with Ethan and I know you'll enjoy the chat with Eamon. So enjoy and I'll speak to you soon. In this segment I want to cover drop sets and weight training. Drop sets or downsets, whichever phrase or terminology you prefer to use. Uh, they're the same in my book. Um, they've been used in training for a long time, uh, in uh, bodybuilding especially, um, but I've seen them uh, have been utilized in strength training as well. Um, in the strength training aspect, utilizing downsets is if you're using, if you're strength training uh, with moderate heavy fives or you're doing heavy triples, uh, obviously you are looking for maximal strength gains, so you're not going to accumulate as much volume as you would be in, say, a hypertrophy phase. Uh, if you're still looking to accumulate some volume uh, because the central nervous system is just so taxed from all the strength training and the muscle fiber recruitment, you can utilize downsets as a way to accumulate uh, some fatigue, uh, volume without um, accumulating a ton of fatigue in, uh, say, the beginning of your workout. So, for example, if I'm squatting uh, sets of three sets of five at 100 kilos, um, and that's roughly, let's say, uh, 90% of my best squat, I'll keep the math easy, um, then you could use two or three down sets at, say, 75 or 80 kilos um, as a way to accumulate some volume um, but still utilize uh, some strength. So, if I was doing 100 kilos at sets of five uh, for three sets. Um, I could then use two down sets at 75 to 80 kilos uh, for sets of five. So I get a little bit of, I still get strength training because I'm not um, going up in the high rep ranges of my sets, uh, but I'm doing some extra volume uh, with the, the drop sets. So I accumulate some volume, um, which uh, allows me to target a little bit of hypertrophy work, um, but I'm still uh, in the in the strength training rate, uh, realm. You could also utilize downsets for uh, hypertrophy work. You could do, uh, let's say, three sets of eight at um, a, a strict press at uh, 100 kilos, because uh, 100 kilos is just easy math. 
Uh, if I'm doing three sets of eight, I could then drop down for uh, uh, three sets of eight at um, 85 kilos or 70 or 75 or 85 to 75 kilos. So you accumulate uh, more volume with the down sets, uh, but you're not accumulating as much fatigue uh, because you're not um, in your working sets. Uh, you can utilize those in your program, um, and they're a great way to uh, uh, add volume to the, to the workout. Hope it helps. To get your weekly dose of applied sports science updates, go to CoachMePlus.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's CoachMePlus.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So tonight I have the absolute pleasure to speak with the lead S&C coach at the Irish Institute of Sport in Eamon Flanagan. So welcome to the podcast, Eamon. Thanks, Rob. Uh, pleasure to, to get to uh, speak to you. Absolutely. So pleasure to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of uh, information on on you and, and what you're doing down at the, uh, down at the Institute. Um, yeah, so I suppose the kind of I've just started working at the Irish Institute of Sport in the last um, kind of seven months or so. Um, so I guess I've, I've, I've joined at a, an interesting time in that we're in the last kind of six to eight months, you know, leading to Rio. Um, and mainly here we look after, you know, the strength and conditioning, the physiology, the performance analysis, the, the physiotherapy, lifestyle skills, medical services to really the high performance focus sports within Ireland. Um, and I, I work specifically in the, the strength and conditioning department. Um, so I work um, across a number of different sports, but for the most part at the Institute here, we work with, you know, large athlete groups in athletics, Paralympics, boxing, uh, and smaller athlete groups in badminton, swimming, triathlon, modern pentathlon. Um, so my role here is a, a little bit of a mix of managing the strength and conditioning delivery across sports, uh, some active coaching with certain athlete groups, a little bit of sports science support, a little bit of program management, that that kind of thing uh, generally. Um, and then I guess the, the the path I've kind of taken to, to get here, you know, over the last 10 years or so, um, uh, I started out doing a sports and exercise science degree um, in the University of Limerick. And I kind of fairly shortly after that transitioned into a, into a PhD program, I was pretty lucky to to pick up some scholarship funding to to do a a master's to PhD transfer program, um, and I did my research on kind of stretch shortening cycle function, reactive strength, uh, force production abilities in athletes who had had previous ACL reconstruction and, and had been rehabilitating. Um, and I guess since then I was lucky to do to do a year in my my, my PhD program over in Northern Michigan University where there was a a U.S. Olympic Education Center training facility for boxing, speed skating, weightlifting, and I got the opportunity to train there and learn uh, with the with the weightlifting squad and the head coach there, uh, Ma Jamping, who was uh, an Olympian uh, for China in, in 1984 in the LA Games. Um, and I think that's what I probably liked most about the, the PhD program. Really, was the the, the flexibility it offered a, a kind of a a young sports scientist slash S and C coach. Um, uh, the PhD program I found myself in afforded me a, a lot of flexibility to manage my own time when I tested, when I did my lit review, how I set my deadlines. And so it gave me a good opportunity to 
to begin to build up that coaching experience um, as I went along. So I was I was getting to do little bits and pieces of volunteer work and part-time work in um, rowing, athletics, Gaelic games, club rugby, professional rugby. And as the, like everybody else, as the PhD program, as my education program was kind of coming to an end, I was scrambling around looking for a, a full-time job, as, as, as we all do. Um, like most people, I had plenty of knockbacks. Uh, and then I got the opportunity to go to Scottish rugby over in Edinburgh. Um, and I moved over there. Um, I worked uh, for a year in their national academy. And then I spent three absolutely fantastic years at Edinburgh rugby. And about three, three and a half years ago, I moved back to Dublin in Ireland to work for the IRFU. And I worked with the IRFU, uh, with the national under twenties team and across the, the academy, the academy program, um, you know, our, our, our underage players on a national level. And then just before Christmas last year, I, I, I moved across, I made the move across to the Irish Institute of Sport. And so we're still, still based in Dublin here. Interesting. So I one thing that I don't want to drop this on you and, and please feel free to kind of veto the, the question, but yeah, yeah. one one thing that I'd seen on, on Twitter a little bit over probably over the last couple of months really is is a bit of not negative, but the yeah, I suppose it is negative about the the publishing uh process. And obviously mm, someone that's yeah. gone through a PhD um yeah. and is is still obviously actively um publishing research what is the what is your kind of thoughts about about the whole process itself because um, like yeah. there seems to be a lot of negatives about it that was all yeah yeah um really good question um what do i think about that i think i think when i was trying to write and publish as part of my phd program i didn't know any better to question the process so I wrote my papers, my supervisor reviewed them, I got great critical feedback, I tied that into the paper, I sent it in for review, I got the reviewer's feedback, which at times may have been frustrating or I may have disagreed with, but you know, I, I tried to take it as critical, uh, constructive feedback and I tried to improve whatever paper I might have been working on at the time. And so I think in theory, in theory that process to me is great, you know, it, it, it's a good, it's a valuable process. I think the only observation I'd have more recently is I think the speed at which information is now disseminated through social media and, and online, I don't know if that's maybe negatively affecting the peer review process in a lot of ways in the sense that, um, you know, for example, if I submit a paper tomorrow, you know, you see a lot of people do this. They, they submit a paper and then they, they send out a tweet that says, hey, just submit my paper on you know, stretch shortening cycle performance in elite rugby players to the journal strength and conditioning research. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. Yeah. Let's say that <laughs> straight, straight away. Um, you know, you've pretty much completely uh, blown apart the whole concept of the blind reviewing process for starters. <laughs> right. But I think in a lot of ways, as frustrating as the peer review process might be, I think us researchers and us people who are active on social media, we've got to take a little bit of responsibility for it as well. Um, but I think now because it's so easy to spread data, so effectively and so quickly, I can understand why that would make anybody quite frustrated with the peer review process. You know, you do your research, you 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 take a couple of weeks to to do all the results, you take maybe a month to write the whole thing up, and it still might be 12 months, 18 months, or 24 months before the thing actually comes to print. And it's almost, you know, by definition, it's already outdated. So I can understand that frustration. I'd probably share that frustration but unfortunately, I can't think of a better alternative right now. Okay. 
No, it was just it was just something that again I'd probably read ten minutes before we started talking. And I just thought I wonder what what other people's take is on yeah. this. So no, that's cool, mate. So I just want to get into the um, into the chat and, and it kind of focuses around around what your PhD was, which was um, the kind of RSI stuff. But I just wanted you yeah. to touch on something that I'd spoke to Mark Jarvis about. Who I think he's doing his PhD around the uh, the quantifying of of plyos. So I was wondering if you could just get as get into a little bit of a uh, a chat around the difficulties and the, the the obstacles that that comes with when you want to do that. Yeah, so I guess if we're if we're talking about maybe quantifying plyometric training, um, I think for me there's probably two strands to that, um, and the first is probably you know, quantifying the mechanical or the neuromuscular intensity of exercises, um, you know, so quantifying the stress of the jumping or the landing portion of, of plyometric exercise. And at a, at a simple level, um, and I work fairly simply, um, I guess that's probably going to be dependent on, you know, it's going to typically be determined by, I guess, you know, the amount of force involved in the jumping or the landing phase, maybe the the time in which that force is applied or that force is absorbed and maybe the the joints you know the, the joints in the body across which that force is maybe dissipated or absorbed you know and when we're doing our jumping activities um so i guess if we're thinking about different jumping activities you know something like a counter movement jump a standard vertical jump we in that activity we might produce a reasonably large total amount of force but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a high intensity exercise and um, we might produce a lot of force we might jump with maximal intensity of effort but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a high intensity plyometric exercise because we're applying that force over quite a long time period you know it might be 0.5 or 0.6 of a second uh, and also we're, we're, we're generating or absorbing that force across you know multiple joints the knee and the hip and the ankle are all contributing pretty extensively to absorbing the force on landing or generating the force on jumping um so if you if you counter that to you know your 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 faster plyometric activities like like your repeat hurdle jumps with short contact times or your drop jumps or your pogo hops there you know you've still got reasonably high forces produced but those forces are now produced in very or forces are produced or absorbed in very very short time periods um, and those activities might be a lot more single joint dominant like might be a lot more ankle dominant so all of a sudden you've got similar amounts of force applied more localized to certain joints in much quicker time periods which probably makes them have a much greater stress on muscle connective tissue and and, and the joints involved and um, so i think that's a challenge as a coach is to weigh up what is the relative intensity of the different jumping or plyometric exercises i'm going to use and um, the, the second strand to that i guess is for me is more of a training transfer question and it's what is the type or the nature of the plyometric exercise that, that you're doing and and i guess that's where maybe in some of the stuff i've written or talked about i've talked a little bit about you know the slow stretch shortening cycle or the fast stretch shortening cycle and um, and they're certainly not terms that i coined or came up with in any way um, I've, I've just happened to have kind of researched them a little bit and written about them a little bit um, so for me I guess that the main point there is that not all jumping exercises are created equal um, I think a mistake I've certainly made in the past and maybe some younger or less experienced SNC coaches make is that we tend to kind of lump all jumping related activities in together 
and term them generically plyometric training. Um, but ultimately, there's probably two very different types of, of, of plyometric activity. Um, you've got your more kind of vertical jump jump height focus training which is you know is more physiologically is maybe more slow stretch shortening cycle it tends to be very hip and knee dominant tends to have very long contraction times tends to be very jump height focused and then at the the opposite side of that coin you've maybe got um you know your fast uh fast ground contact focus exercises what we call fast stretch shortening cycle exercises and they typically have much less flexion at the knee and the hip typically have very short contraction times or involve uh, they involve a distinct ground contact phase that's very short in duration um, and they tend to be much more you know ankle dominant uh, and again they tend to be I think much 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 higher intensity plyometric exercises and if we looked at those fast stretch shortening cycle plyometrics you know at one end of the spectrum there you probably have the type of simple skipping and pogo hopping type drills we would do in track training or in warm-up work for the gym and at the other end of that spectrum you'd have i guess you know the 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 the, the more um traditional russian shock training methods you know where you use very high dropping heights in the drop jump and you're looking at very uh intense uh metric exercises that are focused on really quite general physiologic adaptation around you know the neuromuscular system and the, the Golgi tendon organs and things like that and um, so again I think in terms of quantifying you got to think about what's the, the relative intensity of the, the plyometric or the jump training in terms of the stress on the muscle and the connective tissue and the joints and then I think you've got to think about what's the the nature or the type of exercise you're using in terms of wanting to transfer that training to sport because I think beyond uh, very early general training phases in relatively untrained athletes, I suspect there's probably very limited transfer between your slow and your fast stretch shortening cycle activity. So you can do all the counter movement jumps you want. Uh, you can do you know as much uh, box jumps as you want. But beyond an initial general training effect, I don't suspect that's going to have much of a positive effect on you know the integrity of your foot contact or your fast force application in high speed running. You just answered my next question, which was about the transfer of the of the slow and fast uh yeah. stretch shortening cycle activities. So so the, the, the slow uh stretch shortening activities would be um maybe for, for general prep stuff and for uh for younger athletes or less well trained athletes. Um, yeah, I think I think they both can have a place. Okay. I, I think that's maybe something that I would challenge a little bit. I think they, I think both types can have a place in general prep phases yeah. and with novice or beginner athletes. I just think with you know, so in the case of your slow stretch shortening cycle stuff with those novice athletes, you're maybe spending a little bit more time working on the actual mechanics of their jumping and the mechanics of their landing rather than. Uh, the actual height that they're jumping to and in terms of the the faster activities the ground contact focused activities i think they should still be in you know novice training programs ultimately those novice athletes they're still sprinting they're still hopping and skipping as part of their on-field work or track work or whatever so i would still include fast stretch shortening cycle activities for them but you know your focus might be a little bit more on lower intensity options where the athlete can focus on you know good foot integrity good foot contact short contact at times but there's very little focus on again the the contact times and the jump height which makes the the whole exercise a lot more intense um but you know so i think i think the, the slow and the fast will have different transfer effects 
um, for sure. I think one is going to, you know, the, the slow activities or the, the jump height focus activities are obviously going to have a little bit more of a direct effect on jump height uh, outcomes and your, your faster activities are going to have a little bit more of an effect on your, your activities, which are more dependent on fast contact times, ankle dominance uh, and fast force production. Mm-hmm. Which brings me on nicely to uh, a couple of, well, three articles that you wrote for Train With Push about RSI. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about, it's probably going to touch on what you actually spoke about in in the articles. Um, And again, I mean, you talk about you've been talking simply, please drag it down to my level. And and just maybe talk to us a little bit about maybe what you talked about in the the first RSI article and, and actually what it is and kind of where it fits in. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so I guess what we talked about already was, you know, how you might quantify the intensity of your plyometric work. Um, and, you know, you mentioned people there who might be doing PhD work in this area. And I think to, to quantify those plyometric exercises very precisely, you know, you've, you've got to be looking at the, the video. You've got to be looking at the joint angles. You've got to be using your, your force plates uh, if you really want to nail down what the true intensity of those exercises exercises are. Uh, ultimately, you know, not many of us have access to those tools in the, the practical domain that we work in. Um, so I think in that instance, I think it's not a perfect fit, but the Reactive Strength Index can be a, you know, a simple objective tool to guide us towards kind of optimizing that fast stretch shortening cycle training or to guide us or to help us understand the intensity of our, of our plyometric work. Um, so all the Reactive Strength Index is, it's a simple measure um, that you would use in drop jumps or hurdle jumps uh, or hurdle hops, um, repeated pogo hops, uh, and it looks at how high you jump divided by your ground contact time. So if I was uh, doing a drop jump and I got off the ground in 150 milliseconds and I jumped 30 centimeters, that would I'd divide the jump height by the contact time and I'd get a Reactive Strength score of 2 two arbitrary units or two meters per second. Um, so that's kind of how you would calculate it. And I guess now the ability or the, the possibilities of, of measuring that within your training is becoming much more widely available. You can do it with, you know, a jump mat that might cost you a few hundred, few hundred quid. You can do it with timing systems like OptoJump, uh, which are a little bit more expensive, but, you know, very accurate, very reliable. And now you can potentially do it with wearable technology like the push band, which is beginning to incorporate things like the reactive strength index into some of its protocols. Um, so that's kind of what it is. Um, and I, I guess, you know, why I like it is that it's given you that little bit of information about how high you're jumping, how fast you're jumping, and the trade-off between the two. Um, and it's been shown to be a reasonably reliable and a reasonably kind of sensitive measure. So once you can measure it, it allows you, you know, if you want to optimize your plyometric training, it allows you to potentially play around with different box heights in your drop jumps to possibly identify heights that may be a little bit too low or a little bit too high for the athlete, you know, because you're seeing their reactive strength scores, uh, you know, drop off a cliff. Over time, it's potentially a tool you could use to uh, identify your athlete's chronic adaptation to a plyometric training program that you might be in implementing um, and I know we'll talk maybe a little bit later about how you could potentially use it as a monitoring tool or a, a readiness to train tool as well. So one thing we when we were back and forth with the the kind of stuff that we we're going to chat about uh, you mentioned about single leg testing options and that's yeah. something that often gets asked of, of you when it comes to this kind of thing so I just want to touch on 
maybe answer them questions um for yeah i kind of forgot you were going to ask me that so um, <laughs> the simple answer to that is i don't have a good answer to that question so i think for the for the most part what we've been talking about so far has been your slow and your fast stretch shortening exercises and they've been exercises like uh counter movement jumps box jumps they've been exercises like um uh, uh drop jumps uh repeat hops on the spot like pogo hops and obviously all those exercises i've mentioned they're all bilateral and uh, they're all vertical force production um, and we know that obviously so much of the activity we do is a little bit more horizontally focused or can be a bit more horizontally focused and obviously any locomotion we do is very much single leg focused so naturally the question then is well you know do we need to be testing reactive strength more horizontally or do we need to be testing it in, in, in a single leg condition? Uh, and I think the, the simple answer to those two questions is, yeah, ideally, uh, it'd be nice to look at this both vertically and horizontally and both bilaterally and, and in the single leg, single leg option. Um, but I can't, I, I, I can sit here and tell you some, some simple and effective ways to test vertical bilateral reactive strength. And, and I've outlined, outlined a lot of those in the, the train with push article series, but I probably can't sit here and tell you I've got a gold standard for the, um, for the single leg horizontal focused reactive strength testing. Um, I think the general trade off with double versus single leg activity is going to be that you know there's always going to be a trade-off in when we're measuring anything there's always going to be a trade-off i think between experimental control and training or testing specificity um so obviously with something like uh, a vertical drop jump we've got really good control we can control the box height really well um athletes tend to be able to get the technique of the exercise pretty quickly and the results we get tend to be, you know, fairly tightly clustered together. Your your variability from rep to rep is, is you know, within probably 5%. So what we have there is we've got really good experimental control, uh, but potentially we've got a little bit lower specificity. If you're looking for that horizontal single leg option, now we're pushing more towards that specificity side of things. But from my experience, um, from my experience, once you go to that single leg option, the reliability gets a little bit noisier. The data gets a little bit harder to collect. Um, and so I think you lose a little bit of that experimental control when you get after the, the specificity, but that doesn't just because we can't measure it as well as we can measure the general training doesn't mean that that's not an avenue that's that's worth exploring. And I know there's a lot of good researchers out there doing more work in that area than I am. And I, I think I think James Wilde, for example, who you've had in the podcast before, I think he's doing some pretty good work in that area. So he might be the one who really nails down a, a, a nice robust horizontal single leg reactive strength um test and and that that's me firmly passing the buck to somebody <laughs> else there yeah. a fellow passing the book to a fellow ginger for me yeah yeah he was great yeah he was great to have on with james um so just about i mean you touched on it and said we would talk about it uh in a, in a while so I'll, I'll kind of bring it back to the to the daily monitoring and maybe this goes into probably touching on parts two and three for the uh, RSI articles, but it was yeah. just where does where does RSI fit into the into the bigger uh, daily monitoring in picture for people? Yeah, so I guess you know, like I said already, I think there's probably for me there's three simple applications to using the reactive strength index, and one is just using it acutely to try and optimize the the plyometric intensity of your exercise, changing the box height on your. Um, Changing the box height on your drop jumps, as an example. Uh, the other way is, you know, maybe using it as a, 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 a 
quarterly or monthly or weekly test to look at the the chronic adaptation to plyometric training and the chronic adaptation to reactive strength training. Um, but you could potentially use that same data as a daily or as a weekly readiness to train type metric. Um, so the, the obvious question there is why would you use something like the reactive strength index rather than you know the counter movement jump which i think if we were having this conversation five or six years ago i think more people were probably using a standard counter movement jump for height as their weekly monitoring tool um, and i guess when you're using something as simple as a jump height which is output focused only you potentially miss part of the picture when fatigue gets involved so stuart cormack for example you know, did, did incredible work in this area um, you know, back in, I think, 2007, 2008, around that time in AFL, you know, and he looked at different jump tests across an entire AFL season. And I think what he showed pretty clearly was that if you if you just look at jump height, athletes can potentially recruit different jump strategies to maintain the same jump height over time. So if I'm under fatigue, if I usually jump 50 centimeters in a counter movement jump and I'm under fatigue, I'll find a way to still jump 48 or 49 centimeters, maybe even 50 centimeters, but I might spend longer in the eccentric phase. I might spend longer in the transition phase from, uh, from eccentric to concentric. I might go through greater hip and knee flexion in order to generate the force I need to jump 48, 49, 50 centimeters. Um, and I think what Stuart Cormack did was he, he continued using a counter movement jump, but I guess using a force plate, he was able to look at how does that jump jump height late to the time it takes me to produce the jump. So, you know, uh, how long does it take me to go through the eccentric and concentric phase? That's basically my contact time and my con contraction time. And how does that relate to the jump height that I jumped? And he found that that was a much more sensitive measure to fatigue over, you know, an arduous week on week season. And, and so that's where the, the, the reactive strength index potentially adds some value as a marker of neuromuscular fatigue um, it's not just looking at jump height it's looking at the contact time as well and it's looking at them in relation to each other so um you know again if i'm if i'm on my good days if i'm jumping 30 centimeters and i'm, I'm getting off the ground in 150 milliseconds as i go through a period of the season I, I become fatigued i may maintain that jump height at 30 centimeters but my contact time might creep out to 160 milliseconds 170 milliseconds 190 milliseconds so we'll see quite a noticeable measurable difference in the reactive strength index on that basis because yeah i'm maintaining jump height but i'm doing it in a different way i'm recruiting a different strategy to to achieve the the same outcome so i think because of that um the reactive strength index is potentially a, a more sensitive tool to try and assess that fitness fatigue um model mm -hmm. uh, when we're look when we're looking at our athletes so is there, is there specific thresholds that you would say is accept, not, I suppose not thresholds, but um, say, take the example of the, the 30 centimeter jump and um, 150 milliseconds. At what point are yeah. you, at what point are you changing things in your, in your, in the up and coming training session? Are you letting it yeah, go to point one or, you know, point, what, what would that, what would that look like? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess what I would probably say here is that I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit here and tell you I could, I would set the, percentage yeah. cutoff point for somebody's program intervention. Um, I think the way I would try and look to do that type of work is to really take every athlete as an individual. So every athlete's going to have different amounts of variability from trial to trial. So, you know, I might, you know, have 2% variability on my three drop jump tests 
Um, another athlete might have six percent variability, and that just might be our, our usual variability. So I think the best approach is you know you have a you're certainly going to need um, a group of athletes who are familiar with fast plyometric training, who are familiar with drop jumps, and have had a habituation period. And you probably are going to need to have that habituation period be a number of weeks, a number of testing sessions. But you know it can be worked into warm up type activities or general readiness to train type activities. And then I think after that, you're really looking at establishing each individual's baseline, knowing what their, their kind of normal variation is from rep to rep or from week to week, and then using that data, I guess, to, to set individual thresholds using something like a you know smallest worthwhile change or an effect size type approach that might give you the option of having you know your 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 green, amber, red traffic light system. So if I was to to work with a group right now, you know the the, the the, the, the general standard I'd probably use might be, you know, looking at a moderate effect size, which tends to be 0.6 of a standard deviation. That might be like my, my amber zone where I'm going to pay a little bit of attention to the, to the decline in performance. And, you know, a standard deviation or a 1.2 standard deviations, a, a large effect size, that's probably what I'm going to have as my red flag. So when that athlete is, you know, a full standard deviation below, you know, the baseline we've established, that's maybe where we're looking at possibly having some kind of intervention. Um, but, you know, we, we spoke a little bit previously, Rob, about for me, you know, you got to have your baselines, you got to establish individual thresholds. But for me, the biggest part of, of the monitoring process, whether it's RSI or any monitoring tool we use, for me, it's, it's the context and the context, in spe specifically the context of that individual athlete. Um, and I guess what I, what I mean by that is, you know, as S&C coaches now, we, we, we're in this era of big data. If you take something like, I don't know, I guess, you know, the, the simplest monitoring tool we've got is probably training time and RPE to give us a training load. Simple, simplest, most widely available, cheapest tool we've got. And if you even just take that tool alone, out of those two numbers, our training time and our RPE, we can get training load, training monotony, training strain. We can get the training stress balance uh, that Tim Gabbett's published a lot on. We can get, you know, weekly change in terms of percentages. We can get a percentage breakdown of how much training load we've spent in SNC, sports specific, speed, conditioning, etc. You know, even just that simple method that can bombard us with information. So... And then that's not to mention before we get into musculoskeletal screens, reactive strength testing, HRV, GPS, whatever, whatever monitoring tools we're using. Um, so I think for me, context is really important. And, and that the context for me is framed by an understanding for each of our athletes of what the, the big established kind of risk factors are. Um, so we know reasonably strongly that, you know, stronger athletes are going to recover a little bit quicker from game to game. Tim Gavitt's done some work in that area. We know that athletes who are better conditioned uh, are going to recover more effectively from game to game and will tolerate the demands of training more effectively. We know that strength has a protective effect in terms of injury. We know that, you know, injury history is probably one of the best predictive factors around future injury. Um, you know, a lot of the work that's been done by UEFA on their big epidemiological studies in football would show us that, you know, we know when there's short time periods from game to game or athletes, players' game time is poorly managed and they accumulate quite a lot of game time acutely, we know that that's an injury risk factor. Um, and I think most of us working in strength and conditioning would, would, would also probably 
know intuitively or through experience that those athletes with their really explosive fast twitch speed profiles we know that they tend to need a little bit more managing and tend to be a little bit more exposed to to acute injury incidences as well so i told you i'd go off on a tangent so here it is (laughs) for me i guess the point is I would always look at those factors first. So I'd look at I'd look at my athletes, especially in the team sport environment where you might be managing 30, 35, even 50 athletes week on week. And I'd try and identify who are the ones who are strong, who are the ones who are well conditioned or poorly conditioned, who are the explosive guys, who are the poor who are the 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 you know the workhorses, who are the the guys with extensive injury histories, who are not. And that for me would inform any decision I'm making on something like my monitoring tests or my reactive strength tests week on week. If I've got a guy who's really strong, very well conditioned, keeps himself in good condition, has a very clean injury history. And if I've got a guy like that and he's in that red zone for reactive strength index, I'm going to be much less inclined to make any intervention because for me, that athlete over time, the whole point of him doing all that training, the whole point of him getting stronger, getting more fit, keeping himself lean, keeping himself fit and healthy. The whole point of that 10 years that he's put in is so that he can get through these periods of fatigue relatively unscathed. Um, if I'm dealing with a guy who's, you know, not as, you know, not as strong compared to his peers, especially in the contact sport, who's not well conditioned, but who may still be very explosive, who maybe has an extensive injury history, um, when I'm seeing those red flags in the wellness scores or the reactive strength testing or the, um, you know, the, the, the training load or the training stress balance metrics, that's where I'm probably going to be a lot more likely to intervene or to go to the head coach and try and promote an intervention in that case. And I guess for me, it's a little bit like, you know, if we're not looking at those big risk factors first, it's a bit like looking, trying to look for, you know, advanced screens for coronary heart disease before you've even asked the patient whether they smoke or not, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just think we've got to take the big picture into account and use that to inform how we, how we action the, the monitoring data. You're just going to take a short break in the middle of the chat with Eamon. In part two, uh, you can look forward to Eamon chatting about velocity-based training uh, and where that fits into his program uh, and a lot of views uh, from Eamon on that. So massive thanks to Coach Me Plus for providing the little segment at the start of the episode uh, and for sponsoring the episode today. And massive thanks to Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard, for also sponsoring the episode today. So as we mentioned in part uh, one with with Eamon, I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to to catch up with the RSI articles that Eamon did for Train With Push. So if you go to trainwithpush.com and just visit the blog, all Eamon's articles are up there. So hope you enjoyed part one and hope you do enjoy part two. Uh, I'm sure you will uh, and we'll catch up soon. Enjoy. So I just want to move on a little bit and I know, I know, I know you don't want to be known as the velocity-based training guy, so yeah. But we'll have to touch on it. So, sure, yeah. Um, obviously, it's an area that you've um, you're familiar with. But you, did you do you just want to give us a kind of a brief overview of maybe where you use it with your athletes um, and where it might kind of fit into the um, more global training environment? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good question. Um, um, 
So where would I use it and when would I use it? Yeah, I guess, I mean, at different times I've used velocity-based training more than others. There's been many environments in which I've barely used it at all. And there's been some environments where I've used it a lot um, and some athletes where I'll use it sparingly. Um, so I guess, first of all, I think it's useful to give you the examples of where I wouldn't use it. So instances of where I wouldn't be too interested or feel like there's much need to use velocity based training uh, or velocity measurement devices would be, um, I guess, with novice athletes. So I'm working with an athlete who doesn't have particularly robust patterns in the weight room. Well, then I'm not inclined to put the velocity measurement on and ask them to give me big outputs. Um, I'll spend the time working with them face-to-face, improving those patterns, getting them, hopefully, hopefully getting them to be able to tolerate, um, you know, consistent loading week on week. Um, so that's one instance of where I wouldn't use it. I wouldn't use it where the, the, the coaching athlete ratio isn't good. So, you know, if I'm in a, you know, when I work with Irish, the Irish under twenties, often you might be in the weight room and the, the race is, you know, 12 to one, 14 to one, or, you know, 16 to two or whatever. So in that kind of environment, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to want to spend as little time with my head down in an iPad as possible. Um, so in that environment, a couple of guys might be using the, a couple of the more experienced guys might be using the technology themselves and I might give them a little guidance on that. But for the most part, I'm not using it. I'm keeping my eyes up and I'm trying to look at what the guys are doing and keep an eye on them much more qualitatively, much more technically in the build up to a, to a test match, let's say. Um, that's where I wouldn't use it. I'd also be much less inclined to use it with new athletes. Uh, they could be experienced athletes, but if I haven't already, you know, watched them train for a significant amount of time and don't have a good appreciation for how they move, how they train, I haven't built up much rapport with them, then I'll try and not use it very much, you know, um, because again, it, it's maybe a distraction and it's going to detract from what I'm seeing with my eyes and, and, and the relationship and development with those athletes. Um, but obviously, that's not to say that there aren't terrific applications for the technology. And like we said about reactive strength measurements, that the technology is more available than it's ever been, you know, with, with different suppliers and different price price points. Um, so I think how I would use it would very much vary from athlete to athlete. So we talked a little bit about reactive strength testing uh, before, and reactive strength testing is maybe useful because it's not just giving you an output of jump height, but it's also giving you information on how you do the jump, contact time. So if I'm working with Paralympic athletes, maybe a wheelchair racer, for example, or a wheelchair-based shot putter, for example, obviously that reactive strength testing isn't gonna isn't gonna be an option, but velocity-based training is, is potentially giving us something just as useful. So we might pick a fixed load in a bench press or a fixed load in a bench throw. We might test that light fixed load week on week, and we're getting a velocity measurement there, which just like the uh reactive strength index, ultimately velocity is a distance divided by a time. So with those athletes, I might use it as a weekly monitor, just like we might use reactive strength, but that might be the only the only time I use it with, with some athletes. Um, I like the idea of using it um, to maybe add depth to our strength testing. So I, in the past, I've probably been a big one rep max testing guy. I still think there's a place for it. I still think I still think there's a place for one rep max testing. It obviously has its its downsides. Um, and I think more and more velocity-based training really offers us a lot more of a chance to look at an athlete's profile without even taking them close to a one rep max lift. So we can see what they're doing at 40% 1RM, 60% 1RM, and 80% 1RM. And it'll give us a little bit of an insight into, especially amongst a, a bigger group, who are the guys who are producing high speeds at low loads? Who are the guys who are producing 
you know, low speeds and higher loads and maybe give us a little bit of an insight into our training groups as to where we might want to look at maximal strength development and where we might want to look at a little bit more of a velocity, velocity focused. Um, and in some cases, I haven't used this method a huge amount, but in some cases, you know, it's a nice tool to use to, to limit the fatigue effects in our training or to find that optimal training zone. So, you know, the relationship between load and velocity, um, it's very robust, very strong relationship. Um, so on a given day, you know, we, I might be able to back squat. I can't, but let's say I could back squat 200 kilos. Um, you know, on a day when I'm super fresh, super fit, super pumped, I might come into the gym and I might give you that 200 kilos and we can, you can program, you know, my 80% load, my 90% load off the back of that. But in our, you know, in, in, in any of our sports, there are so many other stressors outside of the, the weight room on a given day, I might come in and the most I can give you is, is, is 160 kilos. So if you're prescribing me to lift five sets of five at 80%, all of a sudden on that day, in that moment, you're maybe asking me to actually do five sets of five at hundred percent. Um, so if we have a bit of a profile on our athletes and we know the velocity zones, which equate to the relative percentage of load on a given day, we can be a little bit more flexible in the weight room and we can say, Hey, look, I want you to do five sets of five. I want you to roughly work in this velocity zone, let's say 0.8 to 0.6 meters per second. You can go as heavy as you want, as long as none of your reps are below 0.6 meters per second. And that's not a bad way to ensure that the athlete is working in, let's say, that 80% zone on that day. On another day, that 80% zone might look very different if they're fresher, more psychologically kind of ready for the session, et cetera. Um, but overall, look, I think overall, I would say the uh, the simplest uh, application for velocity-based training is also probably the most effective. And that's just simply giving athletes feedback as a tool to drive their output. Um, so you don't need to do any clever maths. You don't need to. You don't need to have any kind of complicated spreadsheets. If you're just giving the athlete their scores, you know you're you're telling them how fast they're moving the bar in a session where you really want them to have a high intent of effort on each repetition. That for me is probably the best outcome. So if we're in a you know potentially a speed strength phase or you're doing ballistic work that's very much targeting high intensity of effort high speed of movement or just high intent of movement. That to me is the simplest and the most effective application. Give athletes feedback, give two athletes training alongside each other feedback, have them compete against each other, have them compete against themselves. And you're going to get a, the athlete is going to get a, a better intensity of effort from rep to rep. And we would, we would expect that we're going to get a better um, training effect because of that higher intensity of effort. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to uh, using the push for RSI, what's the validity and reliability of that compared to something like an OptiJump? And just to make everyone aware that you're not an ambassador for any of these products that we mentioned, so no. just get that um, out of Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's not something... So I, so we, we've got a paper in press at the moment uh, with the University of Limerick where we've looked a little bit at the reliability of the push device versus what we'd hope is a gold standard in 3D motion capture. Uh, and I think generally they're like, and that's just in bench press activity. And generally they're the picture for something like the, a, a wearable tech, a piece of wearable technology. Picture is generally a good one. It's, uh, you know, it, 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 it describes the relationships between load and velocity that we would expect to see. But it's, you know, it's a little noisier than the gold standard. It's maybe a little noisier than some of the linear position transducers. 
But is it good enough to give you what you need? I think it probably is. Um, and is it good enough considering the price point? I think it probably is. Um, obviously, the counter-movement jump stuff and the reactive strength stuff has come online a little bit more recently. I, I can't say that I've looked at that in any really robust empirical manner, but I have taken a little bit of a look at it. And I think I've seen enough to think that it's promising. Um, but if I was using both right now, I'd be using Opto Jump because you know it's it's measuring the contact time and the jump height directly rather than integrating it from accelerometry based data. But I've seen enough to think that it's it's pretty promising. And as long as you you nail down your protocol pretty tightly, um, I think you're probably going to get some reasonably meaningful, reasonably actionable data. Um, will it be it right now? Is it precise enough to make those acute training adjustments we're talking about from week to week? I'm not sure. Is it enough to give you a guide on how an athlete's adapting over longer periods of time when you've got more data points and you can smooth out the noise a little bit? I think it's probably got some some value to add there for sure. Um, one thing that's probably worth mentioning there that the, the, we've talked a lot about using the reactive strength index in drop jumps. And that I think is what's traditionally been done with the reactive strength index. Um, but the, the 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 protocol on the push device is actually repeat hogo uh, repeat pogo hops. So repeat vertical jumps. Uh, sorry, repeat vertical hops with short contact times, uh, and that's something I have used pretty extensively uh, with timing gates, uh, opto jump type system, not with push. But I should say here that I really like that protocol. I think that protocol uh, is very intuitive for athletes. Most of them get it. Can pick it up very quickly. I think your habituation period is shorter, and um, it, um, so that that's a big plus. Um, one of the challenges with uh, if you're not using a force plane, if you're just using a jump mat, one of the challenges with reactive strength index is the jump height is calculated from the flight time, and the flight time can be manipulated by you know tucking the feet up on landing. So you don't land with the legs towards extension. You kind of tuck a little bit. And you get a few extra milliseconds on, on your flight time, which gives you a, a few, you know couple of percent on your jump height, uh, and it's, that's kind of hard to police, even with a really good habituation, uh, really good eyes on coaching and strict coaching. It's hard to police, and it's hard to see those tiny percentages that athletes might consciously or subconsciously cheat a little bit. And I think why I like the the pogo hop um, protocol is because it's a hopping based protocol you have to have your legs towards extension on every landing. Otherwise, you won't be able to hop effectively. Um, so I think it standardizes that a little bit and it takes the um, it takes the onus off you as a coach having to watch every rep exactly and be really strict on the landing. So a little bit of an aside, but I think the protocol that's built into that push system, I think it's, it's, it's a pretty nice protocol. And if anybody had jump mass, jump, push, uh, whatever whatever they've got, I think it's worthwhile to experiment with a repeat hop protocol because I think it can give a lot of value in terms of monitoring that reactive strength. So is there, is there a specific demographic that you would split between the two? You'd do one with the drop jump and one with the the one that they use with the push band, the repeated hops? Um, I think in terms of a, a weekly, if we're talking about using reactive strength as a weekly monitor, a readiness to train type monitor, I would just pick the test that I felt best suited the population based on where we're testing, what their training looks like, what they're kind of habituated to. So if they're not doing any drop jumps in their training, then I'd probably do the pogo hop type stuff. If they're really used to doing 
drop jumps, I'd probably do the drop jumps. Um, if I'm traveling away with a team, I'm probably going to do the pogo hops because I don't want to have to bring a 30 centimeter box with me. So, you know, there's, there's those kind of practicalities you've you got to think about. If you're talking about just using reactive strength testing generally, it depends what the, what the, um, what the goal is. So again, you know, if, if obviously if we want to optimize the drop jump testing, sorry, the drop jump training process, well then obviously I'm using drop jumps. If I'm just looking to give an athlete some feedback on, you know, vertical pogo hops or horizontal pogo hops, if we've, if we've got enough octo jump to do that, then, um, then I'm going to, I'm going to use those, those exercises. So it just, I guess it depends on what the, what the training or what the testing outcome is and what the practicalities around that look like. Mm-hmm. So much conscious of time, but I, I know you mentioned a, a paper under review. What have you got any other, um, research in the pipeline? Um, I think the simple answer to that is probably no. Okay. Um, cool. No, not particularly. Yeah. I think um, I've been lucky enough to to, to be asked to, to speak at the, the United States Olympic Committee High Performance Symposium next year, May 2017. Um, so I think I'm hoping between now and then to, to push on a lot of the reactive strength work. I don't know what that looks like just now, um, but I'm hoping to push that work on maybe between now and then and maybe – just really get into a couple of different areas in, in, in that kind of space, you know, particularly around, um, particularly around, I guess, our understanding of reactive strength, but also our understanding of maybe the relationship between, between pure maximal reactive strength and, and maybe our reactive strength endurance. Um, so I'm not sure if I'll get this type of research done, but an area I'd love to sort of explore a little bit is what is the relationship between those two things? Um, you know, because reactive strength is, is so measurable, um, I think in the strength and conditioning field, we, we tend to, you know, sometimes we can push those numbers a little bit too aggressively because they're measurable and we can see them change on a spreadsheet. But I think what we don't really know at the moment, and there's a lot we don't know about plyometric training, and there's a lot we don't know about the, the, the reactive strength quality. And so what I think we really don't know at the moment is, you know, how much reactive strength is enough. So if you think about sports like maybe boxing as an example, maybe 400 meter running, for example, at some point is more reactive strength beyond a certain threshold. Is it actually going to enhance our performance or is it a lot more important, you know, how well we can maintain a sub-maximal level of reactive strength for, let's say, effective footwork at the end of a third three-minute round? So... I don't know the answers to, to, to those questions, uh, but I think, you know, as practitioners, we should always be kind of critically assessing the demands of sports we're working in, the, the qualities of the athlete, and trying to identify, you know, is it actually, do we need to keep pushing the, the pure maximal reactive strength qualities of this athlete, or is it more a reactive strength endurance quality that maybe we need to look at in this athlete? So that's something I'd love to, to dip into. Uh, between now and next year, but I have absolutely no idea if that will happen or not. <laughs> is this is this the symposium that's um, that's the invite only one? Is that the is that the same one? We're talking about the same. Um, yeah, so I think it's the one that uh, Tim Hello, who you've had on the podcast, yes. is organising. Yeah, the big time. So I, 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 I don't think it's invite only. Okay, but I think there might be maybe a, like a, a vetting yeah, system of some kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, you got invited to the big time one. Yeah, I have. I've gotten very lucky. Yeah, I've gotten very lucky. So I'll get a little trip to Colorado next year. So I'm very much looking forward to this, to that. And it's it's a chance to 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 plug the symposium for Tim as well. Yeah, absolutely. I know he's keen to get the word 
out there and getting as many people working in high performance sport applying for for that uh, to attend that symposium as possible. Nice, brilliant. So where where can people people where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on research wise, social um, media yeah. wise, Colorado wise? Uh, yeah, I think I think I think Twitter is probably the the best bet. Um, my 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 Twitter handle is at Eamon Flanagan, um, and I'm I'm pretty active there. So I think anybody who wants to get in touch, that's that's probably the best way to do it. I'm not I'm not particularly active on any other forms of social media. So that's that's the best way I think to to keep in touch. Cool. And you've got a research gate page with your stuff on there as well. I do. Yeah, I do. Um, yes. Uh, that should be pretty easy to find, I think, if you if you search for my for my name. Yeah, I've been stalking you, so if you just put your name in, it's, it's the L comes up. Yeah, you just got to spell the name right, which might be a challenge for some of your listeners. But there you go. <laughs> no, that's cool, mate. Well, um, I round up there because I've kept you for not not far off an hour now. So, um, really appreciate your time, and really glad we got to uh, got to line this up and have a chat. Thanks very much, Rob. No, I was uh, I was excited to. I know it took a while to come together, but very excited to speak to you. And uh, the podcast is a is a really good resource for people. Um, so thanks to you for for keeping it keeping it going and and getting so many good people to talk to you. Absolute pleasure. The the money's in the post. The money's in the post. Good man. Thanks, mate. See you, Rob. Speak soon. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks a lot for tuning in and listening to episode ninety nine of the Pacey Performance Podcast with Eamon Flanagan. So, big build-up for me to number 100, so a bit of a landmark to, uh, to get the podcast there. So I'm sure you'll, you'll tune in and see, what, see what's going to go down in episode 100. So just before I let you go, uh, massive thanks to Coach Me Plus and Vile Performance for sponsoring the episode today. And think, thank you to you for your continued support uh, of the podcast. So I will leave you and look forward to speaking to you in episode 100.